Well, good evening, everyone. It's lovely to be together again and to have the opportunity to study the Word of God together. And I'd like to ask you to turn to the book of Revelation, please, to the book of Revelation. And tonight it's chapter 14, to the book of Revelation and to chapter 14. It's a real uh, a challenge and a joy to be joining with you in your studies in uh, Revelation. Um, I won't say it's been an easy week getting ready for the meeting tonight and this morning, uh, but it's been a joy too just to get into God's Word and to enjoy uh, this amazing book. And it really is an incredible book, isn't it? The book of Revelation. And I'm sure that you've been enjoying it, benefiting from it, being edified and challenged by it as you've been studying it together as an assembly. So Revelation chapter 14 And um, I just want to, as it were, put our thoughts in context a little bit and understand where we are in the flow of the book of Revelation. Now, I don't want to to try and cover everything that the uh, brethren before me have covered, but it's good for us just to understand where we are in Revelation chapter 14, and especially for those who maybe haven't been with the assembly uh, while you've been uh, studying together. So already in the book of Revelation, we have had the seven seals have gone by and the seven trumpets have gone by. And then we have had um, a hiatus as we have looked at the different characters in the book of Revelation. We've looked at people like the two witnesses, uh, the woman and the dragon, the two beasts. And then we have this chapter, Revelation chapter 14, before we then go to the seven bowl judgments. So we begin with the seals and the trumpets. We're just about to start in the bowl judgments in chapter 15. But in chapter 14, we have a unique chapter, a very unique chapter that we're going to study tonight. And if I was going to give it a title, if I was going to give a title to Revelation 14, I would call it this. A preview of final victory. A preview of final victory. And thank you to uh, Alan this evening because I couldn't have uh, chosen better hymns uh, myself. If it had been up to me, wonderful hymns are really so apt uh, for the emphasis of this chapter tonight. Let's just come before the Lord in prayer before we continue uh, and look at this uh, wonderful chapter together. Almighty God and dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of gathering together in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and gathering before the open pages of your holy word. Lord, we know that there are believers all over the world tonight who would just love to be where we are here. We'd love to be amongst believers whom they love and who are supporting them and to be amongst people who love God's word and to have the Bible in their own language and to be, have the opportunity to be taught from it. And Lord, all of these things, we don't take them for granted. And if we do, then forgive us, Father, and we pray that we would value your word. Lord, we do thank you for its clarity and its power. We thank you for its life-changing potency. And we pray uh, this evening that as we open thy word, as we study it together, that you really would speak to us, that your Holy Spirit would instruct us, that he would do his great work of leading us into all truth, that he would be our teacher this evening. We pray that the Spirit himself might be at work amongst us, in our hearts and in our minds, that the Lord Jesus might be formed in us. We pray that our affection for him would grow tonight. We pray that our our grip on this passing away world would lessen and diminish and that our appreciation for the Lord would just grow and grow. And so, Lord, we ask these things. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Now, I'd like you to begin, if you could keep a finger or a marker in Revelation 14, I'd like you to go back just to the very first chapter, please. The very first chapter of Revelation, just for a moment. Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. This is how the book begins. You'll have looked at this a number of weeks ago. 
the revelation or apocalypse or unveiling or uncovering of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. That's all I want to read. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Um, I often say this, but, you know, when it comes to prophecy, when it comes to um, teaching about the second coming uh, of the Lord Jesus, there tends to be two kinds of believers. Those that don't really want to talk about it and those that don't want to talk about anything else. And we don't want to fall into either of those camps, do we? We want the whole counsel of God, Genesis to Revelation, everything God has to say in biblical balance held uh, in our hearts and in our minds. But so good, though, to not be avoiding a book like Revelation, but to be enjoying it rather. And I believe in something, I'm sure you believe it too, called the perspicuity of Scripture. It's the same root as the word perspex. And the reason it's called perspex is because you can see through it. And perspicuity means that the Bible is essentially understandable. Essentially understandable because God is a God who desires knowledge and desires clarity. And he hasn't given us the, the, the Bible, hasn't entrusted us with the scriptures to mystify us. He hasn't given us the Bible to confuse us and mystify us and think, oh, well, I'll shut that. I have no hope of understanding it. Rather, he's given us the scriptures for us to have knowledge and understanding. And even a book like Revelation, yes, can be understood. And sometimes people uh, can be tempted to, to listen to voices that say, well, listen, that's for the professionals. Leave books like Ezekiel, Daniel, Revelation, leave that to the professionals. You as an ordinary Christian don't have a hope of understanding this book. Uh, if only you had the knowledge that, that I have, if only you've had the, the knowledge and understanding that this man had, then you'll understand this book. Well, I don't believe that at all. I believe God entrusted us with this word to understand and his Holy Spirit is the best teacher, isn't he? So we entrust ourselves to him. But in the midst of all the detail, in the midst of all the detail and the drama of Revelation, and it's a very dramatic book and a very detailed book, we need to remember what it's all about. And it's there on the, the first page, chapter one, verse one. This is a revelation primarily about one person, about Jesus Christ. And so we always keep him as the preoccupation of our minds in the book of Revelation because it would be quite easy to get bogged down and maybe discouraged and distracted by the details of Revelation and forget the big picture of the Lord Jesus in his glory. So that's all I want to say really, just to preface our thoughts tonight and turn with me now to chapter 14. To chapter 14, bearing in mind that this is all a revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 14. Now, a preview of final victory is the title I've given it. And I want to give you a little structure for the chapter. And what we're going to do is rather than reading the chapter all at once together, we're going to uh, give it this structure and then read it as we study it. So first of all, in the first five verses, I want to see the song that John hears. The song that John hears. Then verses 6 to 13, the messengers from heaven. The messengers from heaven. And then verses 14 to 20, the time for harvest. The time for harvest. Now, another thing that sometimes puts people off a book like Revelation is they say, well, it's theoretical and it's not practical. I want just to take those three headings that we're going to give to the chapter, chapter 14, and I want to give each of them one, one simple practical application. So as we look at the song that John hears, I want us to hear a call to purity. A call to purity. Secondly, as we listen to the messengers from heaven, I want us to hear a call to persevere. 
a call to persevere. And then thirdly, as we see about this time that's coming for harvest, the harvest of the earth, I want us to have a call to praise. A call to praise. So purity and perseverance and praise are going to be the practical things I want you to go away remembering and thinking about this evening. So first of all, we're going to look at the first five verses, the song that John hears, and we'll read them together. So let's read the first five verses of Revelation 14. And just to observe with you, the chapter breaks down very easily because each section begins with, Then I looked, or then I saw. That's very common through Revelation, but it's particularly so here in chapter 14. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Amen. And God will add his blessing to the reading of his word. So here in the first five verses, John hears a song. He hears a song being sung in heaven. And let me just break this little section down just a bit more. We're going to think about three things. The vision, the voice, and the virgins. The vision the voice and the virgin. So we start with the vision, verse one. Then I looked, then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the lamb. On Mount Zion stood the lamb. Now, things are being put right. I've called this chapter a preview of final victory. The book of Revelation, generally speaking, is chronological, generally speaking. But here in chapter 14, the author under the inspiration of the Spirit is actually giving us a preview of things to come. And so you'll find that as we study the chapter, I'm going to be constantly, I make no apology for it, constantly asking you to turn forward in the book of Revelation to see the fulfilment of the things that we're going to be reading about in these 20 verses tonight. Because it's a preview of things to come. He's taking a pause from the present events and saying there are things coming. There are things coming in the future. Now just you wait to hear about the fullness of them. Just you wait to hear about the law, how the law play out in the future of this earth and what's coming but here's a preview of final victory so we start with this vision of mount zion and the lamb now just to observe that this is the literal mount zion this is not a spiritual mount zion this is the mount zion there in jerusalem you could go to it today it's there it's always been there since the creation of the world there is mount zion and that's where our our vision is focused and standing on mount zion is the lamb Things are being put right. Now, I'd like to ask you to turn back to Matthew's Gospel and chapter 24. In these chapters um, of of Revelation, we're dealing with what we call the tribulation. Those seven years of the wrath of God being poured out on the earth. And so necessarily, I'm sure that many brethren have been taking you back time and again to Matthew 24 or Mark 13. Because in these uh, chapters, we have, again, a preview in the Gospels of the things that we're reading about here. Um, So back to Matthew chapter 24. And let's read about one of the the starting pistol shots of the tribulation. 
And we find it in verse 15. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, and then listen to this language, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountaintops and so on. And we have a series of warnings about how godly Jews should behave when the tribulation days begin to unfold. One of the starting pistol shots is this abomination of desolation, this idol, uh, this anti-God idol being set up in the temple, being set up where it should not be, standing in the holy place. Let the reader understand. So when we open Revelation chapter 14 and we find that standing on Mount Zion where he ought to be is who ought to stand there, the lamb himself. And so we know that this is a preview chapter. This is a chapter that's taking us forward to when things are going to be put right. This is a chapter that takes us out of the tribulation to the very end of the tribulation when the millennium is being established. So that's what we're thinking about tonight. We're thinking about the establishment of the reign of Christ on the earth from a few different angles. So let's go back to our chapter then. Back to Revelation 14. So he sees Mount Zion, he sees the Lamb standing, and he begins to think, ah, things are being put right. I'm being given here a preview of how things are going to be sorted out. What a cost. What a cost. In Hebrews chapter 2, we learn about the one who is now crowned with glory and honour because he tasted death. He tasted death. He went through suffering and he's now crowned with glory and honour. And there's coming a day when he will be rightly crowned and recognised for who he truly is. Turn back with me to the Psalms. Psalm 2, please. Psalm 2. And let me remind you of this psalm. Psalm 2, and we'll read from verse 1. And the psalmist asks this question. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. And what does he say next in verse 6? As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, of course, that points forward to David, the man after God's own heart. David being established in Zion as king over Israel. Had to be anointed three times until he was king over the whole nation Anointed at Hebron. But beyond that, beyond that, it points us prophetically forward to the day when the Lord Jesus will be king from Mount Zion. He will really reign. First Corinthians tells us, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That's why we are unswerving in believing that there's coming a day when literally, literally, the Lord Jesus is going to reign and govern this world upon which we sit now, tonight, from a physical throne in Jerusalem. These things are not spiritual. They're not merely um, pointing to spiritual lessons. These are really going to occur. So that's the vision. What about the voice that he hears? Back to Revelation chapter 14. And I heard a voice, he says, from heaven like the roar of many waters. Your ears might prick up at this point and you might think, I'm sure I've heard language like that before. I'm sure I've heard a, about a voice like the roar of many waters. And you'd be right because you'd go back to chapter one and that wonderful exalted vision 
of the Lord Jesus. And he is said to have a voice like the roar of many waters. And so we are supposed to see an absolute identification between these 144,000 and their Lord. We've already been told in verse 1, and we'll come back to this in a moment, we've already been told that they've got his name on their foreheads. We'll touch on that in a moment. And we're going to be told in a few moments' time that wherever the lamb goes, they go. There's an absolute identification between them and the Lord. And so John, the Spirit, leads him to write about their voice and to use the words, the roar of many waters, to take us back in our minds to the Lord's voice in chapter 1. This voice is marked by two things. It's marked by volume and by beauty. Volume and beauty. It's always good when these two things are found together, isn't it? You can have volume without beauty. You can have beauty without volume. But here this voice is characterised by volume, yes, but beauty also. Like the roar of many waters and like harpists playing. It's a secret song. It's a secret song. It's a song that we don't know the content of. We're told it's a new song and we'll mention that in a moment. But it's a secret song. Now, just trace something with me. Um, I'm going to make you do quite a lot of work in your Bibles tonight, not only to keep you awake, but also because the more you hear of the Bible, the less you hear of me. So if you turn back to Revelation 2, Revelation 2, let's just think about secret things. Secret things. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 17. This is the letter to the church in Pergamum. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So these believers in Pergamum are promised a new name, and nobody knows that name. Nobody knows that name. Just forward once again to Revelation 19. Revelation 19, beyond our chapter. Revelation 19 and verses 11 and 12. Revelation 19 verses 11 and 12. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself, and so on and so forth. So we find a name that no one knows in Revelation 2 and a name that no one knows in Revelation 19. And here we find a song that no one knows, a secret song. What does it remind us? It reminds us of the the truth established in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. Now, I've just said to you, that I believe in the perspicuity of scripture, that a book like Revelation is understandable. Does that mean that by the time you've studied through Revelation here at Fernie Lee, you'll have everything about it sewn up? Everything about it sorted out, absolutely clear. No mystery left in the book of Revelation for the folks here at Fernie Lee. I'm sure that'll be the case. Well, no, I don't think so. Because it is still a mysterious book. It's still a mysterious book. So is Daniel, so is Ezekiel. We'd be kidding ourselves if we said it wasn't. These books are full of mystery and we should just enjoy those mysteries. There are sometimes mysteries in the scriptures and the best thing we can do is enjoy them. The fact that they are mysteries and one day we'll know. And we're told everything we must need to know uh, in the scriptures, not everything we might necessarily want to know. So back to Revelation 14. Back to chapter 14. So we've seen the vision, we've heard the voice. 
And we've seen, we've seen that the voice is a secret song. They're singing a secret song. It's interesting that the voice is united. Now, there's 144 of them, but at no point does the writer say voices. At no point does he say voices. He says voice. How good is it to sing with one voice? Rebecca and I um, were part of the Praise Gathering Choir this last year. I don't know if any of you have ever been to the Praise Gathering. It's something that happens down in Glasgow and Edinburgh. uh, Big concerts um, once a year. And um, you can sign up to be part of the Praise Gathering Choir. Um, There's no audition for entry. So it doesn't matter if it's just volume or it's volume and beauty as well. You can get into the Praise Gathering Choir. Um, I'm living testament to that because I was in the Praise Gathering Choir. And, um, but how wonderful it was. I loved it. It was a wonderful experience to sing with one voice, to sing with one voice, to be filled with this desire to praise God and to feel that you're part. Yes, your, your voice is contributing, but to be part of one voice praising God. Well, that's what we have here. They're absolutely identified with Christ. They've got their name on his. Uh, they've got his name on their foreheads. They go wherever he goes and they sing with one voice. And it's a song. We don't know the content of it, but we can say one thing for sure. It's about Christ. This song will be about Christ. It's a a new song. Now, that phrase, a new song, is an important scriptural phrase. Comes up time and time again. We don't have time tonight to do a study of the phrase new song uh, through the scriptures. But you'll have heard it back in Revelation 5 when the elders sing a new song. Worthy are you, for you were slain. You've redeemed uh, peoples for God and made them kings and priests, etc., some of the uses of a new song are personal, uh, like Psalm 40. You've put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to Almighty God. And every believer, every born-again Christian in this room tonight would be able to say that, that in one way or another, we've been lifted out of the mighty clay, we've been put on a solid rock, and we've been given in our mouths a new song to sing. A new song of praise to Almighty God, and that characterises or should characterise our lives and our testimony and our witness. But then there's a prophetic element to the new song too. And here I want to take you back to Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah chapter 42, just for a moment. Isaiah chapter 42. And this chapter is in the same theme as the chapter that we're considering I've said already that Revelation 14 is a preview of final victory and it's pointing us forward to the establishment of the thousand year millennial reign of Christ. That's what Isaiah 42 is doing. Of course, hundreds and hundreds of years, 700 years approximately before Christ. So read with me uh, Isaiah 42. We'll read verse one just to ground ourselves. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations, to the nations. There's coming a day when the Lord Jesus will really be in control, and I mean literal control, of the nations. At the moment, the nations of the world are out of control in many ways. And yet there's coming a day when he will establish control of the nations. And then down to verse 6. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, uh, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. You're going to find language very similar to that in Revelation chapter 21. 
Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Then here we have it, verse 10. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it and so on. There is a new song that's going to be sung because God is going to do something new in the future by establishing the reign of the Lord Jesus. We understand, don't we, that as we go through the scriptures, there are periods of time where God relates to man in distinct uh, distinct ways. And we identify these, we use the word dispensation. Dispensation to identify these different eras of time where God is related to mankind in distinct ways. And here we find a dispensational turning point. A dispensational turning point because the tribulation is finishing and the millennium is beginning. That's what Revelation 14 is. It's a pivot point. In God's program of redemption, we're going from the tribulation into the millennium. Things are beginning to be put right, as we said. No longer the abomination of desolation standing in Mount Zion, but rather the Lamb and 144,000 standing where they ought to stand. So, the vision, the voice... Uh, and the virgins. So let's read verses 4 and 5 of our chapter again. Revelation 14, and we'll just focus in on these virgins, these 144,000. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is those who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Now, I don't want to repeat anything that Paul will have told you. I think he was responsible for Revelation 7. That's where these sealed servants of God were first encountered. You meet them, first of all, in Revelation 7. You meet these 144,000. You wonder, who are these individuals? Who's this group here? 144,000. And um, I'm in agreement with Paul, as it turns out, uh, that uh, these are Jewish evangelists in the future. Jewish evangelists in the future who will do a great work of spreading the gospel during the days of the tribulation. Now, you might say, Ian, there's no verse that tells you that that's the case. And you'd be absolutely right. There's no verse that says these 144,000 are Jewish evangelists. But the whole flow, the whole thrust of the book of Revelation, as I say, generally is chronological. And you have these 144,000 Jewish evangelists sealed. And then you have the many multitudes that come to know Christ just in the section after. So the clear and strong inference is that these are 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel designated, called to spread the gospel uh, during the tribulation days. We've seen that they have the mark of the Lord Jesus, the name of the Lord Jesus on their foreheads. Now, Ezekiel, please, and chapter 9. Ezekiel and chapter 9. Ezekiel chapter 9, and uh, the book of Ezekiel has a lot to say about the future. But this section of Ezekiel uh, is actually about Ezekiel's own day. And it's a book of visions, again, very much like Revelation in in structure. Ezekiel chapter 9, and we'll read verses 3 and 4. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed in linen, who had the writing case at his waist. And the Lord said to him, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. These men who are heartbroken at what's happening in a sinful Jerusalem in Ezekiel's day are going to be marked, I don't think physically, but marked out 
uh, by the angels at this time during Ezekiel's day. And they're going to be exempt from judgment. They're going to be exempt from judgment. And that's what we find here. That's what we find here so many years later in the book of Revelation. That here we have 144,000 sealed by God and exempt from judgment. They have his name upon their foreheads. In Revelation chapter 22 we're going to learn uh, more about a name uh, on uh, his name on, on foreheads. But we'll not get carried away by looking at that now. Let's just summarise the features. The features of these 144,000. Imagine being a bystander. Like somebody who's bought a ticket for a praise gathering and you go to hear the choir and we're hearing this choir along with John. And it's beautiful. It sounds like like 144,000 harps playing all at once, like the voice of many waters. And we look at these, these virgins, we look at these uh, individuals and we wonder about them. What are their features? What would we notice about them? We would notice purity, obedience and honesty. Purity, obedience and honesty. They have through the Spirit of God, managed to remain absolutely pure during the worst days of Earth's history. The worst days of Earth's history when conditions are absolutely lobbied against godliness. Now, we might think that that characterises our day, and it does. Everything that surrounds us seems to militate against living a godly life, seems to militate against us living in holiness. And yet, the days in which we live are nothing compared to the seven years of the tribulation as they unfold on the face of the earth. And yet these men have remained pure, sexually pure, yes, but I don't think it's limited to that. I think these men are men characterised by purity. But then we learn that wherever the lamb goes, they go. Unquestioning obedience. Wherever the lamb goes, they go. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be characterised like that? Wherever the Lord wants me to go, I'll go. Whatever he asks me to do, I'll do. There are a lot of young people here uh, this weekend, and there's a lot of young people here tonight. And I would just want to uh, issue a little challenge to you here. As we admire these men, as we admire these 144,000, wherever the lamb asked them to go, they went. Now, it's one thing, of course, to believe in Christ, accept him as your saviour. It's another thing, of course, to be baptised. We're so Glad that Andrew's done that today. But then to go on to seriously say to God, Lord, whatever it is that you would want from me, wherever you would want me to go, I'll go. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do. There's nothing that I want to hold back from you. I will want to put everything, everything on the altar for you, Lord. Now, that's a very serious thing to pray. A very serious thing to pray that says, Lord, whatever the marching orders are, I'll accept them. And I maybe just want to throw out that challenge, first of all, to myself and then pass it on to the young, younger Christians here and, and all of us. Are we that willing? Are we willing to say to the Lord, whatever it is, Lord, however hard it might be, I'm willing to go wherever you want me to go. Do whatever you want me to do. Well, that characterized these men. So we've seen the song that John hears. He sees a vision of Mount Zion and the Lamb. He hears this voice. And he sees these virgins and he points out these features of them. And we hear that call to purity, to a life of radical, <coughs> radical godliness in the midst of a, an ungodly world. Let's read on. And we'll read briefly these, uh, the, the messages of these three angels, these messengers from heaven. And we'll read them just in turn rather than reading them all at once. Now, if I was to give a little title um, or, or structure rather to this section, I would talk about very simply the fear of God. 
the fall of Babylon, the fire of judgment, and the faith of the saints. The fear of God, the fall of Babylon, the fire of judgment, and the faith of the saints. So let's begin and read verses 6 and 7. This is the first message. Again, it begins with the same uh, phrase, then I saw. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. I was studying the Minor Prophets maybe about a year ago and um, I did a week uh, through the Minor Prophets down in London at uh, Collier Row Gospel Hall down in London. And I was trying to think, what are the themes? What are the themes that I've seen um, throughout the Minor Prophets? And it seemed to me that they're, they're very different. You know, you, if you study the Minor Prophets, you find that they're really very different. And often you feel maybe they don't have much in common. I can't really pull a common thread here. But one common thread that I found time and time again through the Minor Prophets was this. Judgment is coming, but mercy is available. Judgment is coming, but mercy is still available. And what amazes me is time and time and time again through the scriptures, through the plan of redemption, even into the future, God still is making mercy available. After every rejection, after every disobedience, after every refusal to accept the way of salvation, the Lord says there's another way of mercy. There's another avenue for mercy. And God again here is making the gospel known. Now there is only one gospel in the Bible. There is only one gospel in the Bible. But there are different aspects to that gospel. It's preached in different ways with a different emphasis through scriptural history. You'll find the gospel of the kingdom. And you'll find the gospel that we preach now of Christ crucified. And each one builds upon the other. Now there'll never be a gospel in the future that doesn't centre on Christ and him crucified. Be certain of that. The, the gospel message as it builds through the Bible never goes backwards. It always goes forwards. And so there's not different gospels, but there's one gospel preached in different ways through the scriptures. And here the gospel is being made known. It's an eternal gospel to proclaim to all of those who live on the earth. And it centers on the fear of God. Fear, glory and worship. Now, we're not going to do it for the sake of time, but if I was to take you to the first chapter of Romans... You'd find that those three things are right there in Romans chapter 1. Fear, glory and worship. Mankind does not fear God. And because he doesn't fear God, he then doesn't give glory to God. And he then begins to worship the creature rather than the creator. And this gospel that's going to be proclaimed in the future as it's proclaimed today is this. Fear God. Fear God. Give him glory and worship him alone. Fear God, give him glory, and worship him alone. This is the gospel of God. Let's read the second message. The fall of Babylon. It's just one verse, verse 8. Another angel, a second, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. The fall of Babylon. When we talk about Babylon here in the book of Revelation, we're talking about the entire social religious political system of the antichrist the whole thing from beginning to end the social religious political system of the antichrist is all summarized in babylon the great 
And Babylon, of course, gets its root from Babel. And what happened at Babel? Mankind, in disobedience to God, said, we will make a name for ourselves. And that has characterised opposition to God from then until today, and will do so in the future. In this really, uh, this, uh, I suppose, climax of opposition to God in Babylon the Great. So Babylon is going to fall. Babylon's going to fall. I don't know if you know what a palindrome is. A palindrome. A palindrome is something that reads backwards as it reads forwards. You can make whole sentences of palindromes. Um, Some names are palindromes, like the name Hannah. If you read it backwards, it's the same as it is forwards. Or if you want a simple one, Bob is a palindrome as well. Uh, But you know, there are elements of the Bible story that are a bit like a palindrome. Bear with me. So let's go back to the start. Perfection. Perfection before anything is ever made. Perfection of the Godhead in love and unity. Perfection. And then we have the first Adam. The first Adam, we've got creation. And Adam is given dominion over the earth. Perfection. We've got the first Adam, dominion over the earth. And then we've got judgment because of the fall of mankind. Judgment because of the fall of mankind. They're outside of the garden now and the cherubim with the flaming sword is barring entry. Perfection. The dominion of the first Adam, and then we have judgment. And then what follows that judgment in the book of Genesis? Well, it's one world system in opposition against God, and we call it the Tower of Babel. We call it the Tower of Babel. Mankind is together. Let's make a name for ourselves. Let's reach up to heaven. And that's what we find in in the early chapters of Genesis. Now, zoom forward to the end of time. To the end of time, what do we have? We have one world system and we call it Babylon the Great. All the way back to Babel, now it's Babylon the Great. And it's one world system in opposition to God and it's led by the Antichrist and the, the beast and the false prophet, etc. And then what do we have? We have judgment because the Lord's going to come and he's going to put an end to all of this. And then what do we find? We find the dominion of the last Adam. The dominion of the last Adam when Christ sets up his messianic kingdom. The perfect man, who is also God, will reign on the earth for a thousand years. I don't know how long it took Adam to fall. We don't know that. We're not told that. But his dominion was a relatively short period of time, I think. And the Lord's dominion will be a thousand years. And then what do we have? We have perfection. We end where we began. We have perfection. But now God has a family and a new heavens and a new earth. Well, the fall of Babylon. Now, I'm not going to take the time to push you forward. uh, But if you were to read in chapter 16 and verse 19, you'll find that the seventh bowl judgment is the fall of Babylon. So that's what we're looking forward to. And chapter 18, just flick over a page or two. And um, we're not going to read much. Just let me show you. Revelation chapter 18, we find almost exactly the same message. Revelation chapter 18, verse 2, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons and so on. That's all I want you to see there. So you can see clearly that chapter 14 is a preview of final victory. It's not chronological. It's giving us a view of of coming events. The fall of Babylon. Now the fire of judgment. Go back to chapter 14 and we'll read from verse 9. Read from verse 9, hurrying on. Verse 9, and another angel, a third, followed them saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or his hand or uh, sorry, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. 
and they have no rest day or night. These worshippers of the beast in its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. One very simple, there's so much we could say about this, isn't there? But one very simple thing just to direct your attention to. This is the justice and judgment of God against his opponents. That's very simple. The justice and judgment of God against his opponents. That's really all I want you to observe here. That there is coming a day of final and absolute justice and judgment. Sometimes you'll be watching the television and there'll be a news reporter who will um, comment on some sort of heinous crime that has taken place. Somebody who's been involved in horrendous crime and they die before their trial is able to come up. They, they die before human justice catches up with them. And the commentator will sometimes say, well, they're beyond justice now. And we as God's people say, not at all. Not at all. Justice for them is just beginning. Justice for them is just beginning. There is no escape from the ultimate justice and judgment of God. Well, there's one escape and it's through Christ. We covered that this morning. Uh, and we who know him and love him will never face the judgment of God for our sin. The fire of judgment, the wine of God's wrath. Again, very common language in the scriptures. Just notice something uh, with me in, uh, towards the end of verse 10. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Sometimes when it comes to the doctrine of hell, and again we were covering that this morning. Sometimes when it comes to the doctrine of hell, understandably, we want to perhaps sometimes soften our language or amend our language a little. Um, and that's completely understandable. But sometimes we can be tempted to say things that maybe are not quite scripturally accurate, such as um, talking about an eternity away from the presence of God. Sometimes people describe hell that way, that you will spend eternity away from the presence of God. Now, if you read Psalm uh, 139, you'll realise there's nowhere away from the presence of God. And in fact, I believe that hell is not. Uh, God is not absent. God is not absent. After all, it's his judgment that's being poured out uh, through the eternity of hell. Very serious, very solemn thing to think about. But it's not the absence of God. It's not away from his presence. Notice it. It's the presence of his angels, the presence of the Lamb. Well, lastly, in this section, the faith of the saints. And look over with me to verse 12. And if we wanted practical application, well, the writer gives it to us on a plate. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labours for their deeds follow them. Believers must endure. Believers must endure. Philippians 1 verse 21. To live is Christ and to die is gain. They're facing an incredibly difficult time to live as believers. And the call is you must endure. And it's a call that we can listen to today too. And we can accept the challenge of it. Not only a call to purity, but also a call to perseverance. I wonder if there's anybody here tonight and you're just simply struggling you're just simply struggling in your spiritual walk, in your spiritual journey. We've all been called to walk a narrow road. And I don't know where you are on that road tonight. Only you know that. But it might be that tonight, if you're really honest, you're actually struggling. You're really struggling just to put one foot in front of the other. To make any sort of spiritual headway or progress at all. And the call to you 
The call to me, the call to all of us tonight is to persevere, to keep going, to keep that consistent, dogged, determined Christian life, to be consistent in the small things that God has asked us to do, and to be consistent in those disciplines of Christian living as we seek to serve him and please him day by day. So it's a call to purity, yes, but a call to perseverance too. And what's the basis of it? The basis of it is this. One day, everything's going to be put right. One day, there's going to be final justice and judgment for all. On that basis, persevere, because things seem, can seem very, very unfair. And this world can seem stacked against us, but one day, it's all going to be put right. So on the basis of that, persevere. And then let's finish our study for tonight. And we'll look very briefly at this time for harvest that's coming in the future. And we really will be very brief as we finish. Revelation 14. And let me just read from verse 14 to verse 20. And here we find the world is reaped, verses 14 to 16. And the winepress is trodden, verses 17 to 20. Then I looked, so there we have the same expression, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, And he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle. Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed. From the winepress, as high as a horse's bridle, for one thousand six hundred stadia. That would be about six hundred and seven feet. So we've got the time for harvest. There's a time for harvest coming. The world is going to be reaped, and the winepress of God is going to be trodden. It's a very different image to how we started. When we started, we had a lamb. Look back to verse one. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood. The lamb. Very different to the lamb now. Now we find one on a white cloud, seated on that cloud, one like a son of man. And it takes you back to Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. Wonderful verses in Daniel chapter 7, all about the ancient of days and the son of man and the giving of authority to the son of man, the beginning of the messianic reign. Again, hundreds of years earlier, being predicted and prophesied by Daniel. Again, we won't take time to look at it. You can look at it yourselves. Daniel 7, wonderful chapter. In God's word, as the son of man is given authority. This sharp sickle, of course, is the sickle of judgment. And the picture is of the reaping of the earth. And the, the reason there are two reapings here, uh, one is by Christ and it's of the world in general. I believe both are in judgment. I don't believe that believers are in view in the first part and unbelievers in the second. But rather the first is the world in general and the second is the vine of God. And consistently through the scriptures, the vine of God is the people of Israel. And here we have the specific, distinct judgment of unbelieving Israel. It's a picture of great slaughter. This wine press being trodden. It's a, it's a very vivid and it's a very powerful picture of blood rising to the height of a horse's bridle. We can hardly imagine uh, such a sight, but it's a picture of a great slaughter in a day to come. Very solemn. 
But as we see this reaping that will come in the future, remember that during all of this period, where will you and I be? During all the tribulation period, where will we be? We will be in the Father's house, according to the promise of John 14, 1 Thessalonians 4. We have been taken up in what the Bible calls the rapture, taken up to be with Christ, which is far better. And we'll be in the Father's house as the events of the tribulation unfold. And then when he comes to establish his kingdom, which we're getting a preview of now, we come with him. We come with him and reign with him as he establishes his kingdom. We think of this harvest to come and the reaping of God's judgment. And what do we as believers reflect on? We reflect on this, that if it weren't for Christ, and if it weren't for the gospel, and if it weren't for Calvary, then this would be my fate. And this would be your fate, being reaped by the sickle of a God of judgment, of a son of man whom we've spurned and rejected, and the final reaping would come. But friends, for each of us who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ tonight, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we are exempted from any aspect of the wrath and judgment of God. We've been made sons of God as we considered this morning. And we will be beholding the glory of the Lord Jesus for those seven years of the tribulation. Now what that's going to be like, I have absolutely no idea, but I just would love to imagine it. We're going to be there one day, friends, seeing his glory. And then coming with him in glory as he establishes his kingdom. Well, if anything would cause us to praise, then that's it. To praise God, to praise the Lord for our redemption, for all that we've been spared from. So, as we finish, it's been a lot of information tonight. Thank you for bearing with me. But it's a call to purity, a call to radical purity as we look at those 144,000 and we notice their obedience to God, we notice their purity, we notice their honesty. It's a call to purity, also a call to persevere. Keep going in this wicked world as we seek to serve God. Persevere, keep going. And then thirdly, it's a call to praise. Remember what you've been saved from. Remember what you've been delivered from. That God has taken us out of the miry clay, set our feet on a rock, and he's given us a new song to sing. Let's pray together, shall we? Almighty God and dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the joy of the scriptures. We thank you for the way that they speak to us so clearly, uh, not only of the past and the present, but also of the future and of a coming day when the Lord Jesus will be victor, when he'll come and be recognized for who he truly is, when he'll be vindicated in this earth. And we look forward, Lord, to reigning with him. And Father, make us fit for it. Train us and mold us and shape us now to be fit to reign with Christ in the coming day. Lord, help us to be pure. Help us to persevere. Help us, Lord, to praise you and to thank you for all that you've saved us from. And Lord, we look forward to the day when we'll see your son face to face. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.